0: Spring Green, August 15th, 1914. Frantic phone calls report a house fire on a hill overlooking the valley two miles south of town. Both authorities and residents respond, and when they arrive, they find absolute carnage. Bodies are scattered throughout the scene, all killed not by a fire, but bludgeoned with an ax, inside and around the house. But this was no ordinary house. This was the world famous Taliesin, the home of Wisconsin's most famous native son, Frank Lloyd Wright. Welcome to Badger Bizarre. A murder investigation would lead police to the farmhouse of Ed Dean. Mass murder at Frank Lloyd Wright's Spring Green Estate, Taliesin. Now authorities believe the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer... The same body parts, such as skulls, skeletons. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in to this, the inaugural episode. Episode number one of Badger Bazaar. I am your co host, Scott Whitman. And Alo- I am your co
1: host, Mickey Sanders. Oh, I'm not going to let you introduce me. I'll do it
0: myself. <laughs> <laughs> and he introduces himself, but this is with me, my co host. Podcaster extraordinaire himself, (laughs) lifelong friend, Mickey Sanders. How you doing, Mickey? I'm better.
1: Better? Now that we're starting the episode, because we've been talking for two hours before this. Yeah.
0: I mean, it was a good conversation. Getting all our ducks in a row, right? Yeah,
1: yeah. just getting the stuff out of our system.
0: (laughs) Since this is the first episode, we should probably get into, we'll get into who we are, I think, as definitely as the show goes on, there will also be the whole array of social media out there, Facebook, Twitter. um, And we hope this is and becomes interactive with listeners out there. So please search for us on Facebook, Twitter. Uh, By the time you hear this, that will all be up and ready. Our personalities will come out whether you want them to or not. You will definitely get to know us. Wisconsin has such a unique history. Our history, our heritage, our culture. It's so unique, not just... Within the United States, it's kind of a melting pot inside the melting pot of our country. You know? It is, and and just in the in the in the region that we're in, if the Upper Midwest, if you want to call it that, you know, we all have, I think, our own little identities. But but there's just so much that is just purely Wisconsin. Yeah, you know what I mean. And
1: yeah, there's things you get here that you're not going to get anywhere else. Even as far as dialect, just dialect alone, you know.
0: No question, you know, and I and I like. Talking about the history and the heritage of Wisconsin, as everybody else, you know, but can You've always. written a book about it. Even I have, but throw in uh, a couple of uh, cannibal serial killers, and I think now you're hitting on what what Badger Bizarre, like,
1: iconic serial killers that make our nation famous. So yeah, with that history, and we that, almost have them as bragging rights in this in this state. To if some you degree. want to call it that, right? I mean, some right. people they actually do brag about it.
0: With that unique history and heritage, there is also kind of a flip side to that, right? I mean, some of that heritage is is pretty messed up. Oh yeah, right? well. A, well a, a little bit. Because
1: serial oh. killers are normal and
0: mainstream. <laughs> a little bit. There's nothing
1: screwed up about
0: that. I think the reason that we wanted to start this is because there's always, at least in my perspective, when you're looking for that, kind of the darker history of Wisconsin, and there's a lot of it, there's always been a bit of a void, you know, when I look for that, when I want to see that, when I want to research that, and I don't mean that the cupboards are bare. There's resources out there, for me at least. There's a little bit of wanting there, and so I think with our unique perspectives, hmm. uh, you know, a couple of of native Wisconsinites. Uh, I thought you
1: were going to say something else altogether. So I'm glad you went with native no, Wisconsinites. no,
0: just that. That's it. Native oh, yeah. Wisconsinites. Yep.
1: Very intelligent human beings.
0: You know, I think we have some unique opinions to share here. You know, myself, I am a writer, an author, photographer. I published um, two books now. The second one's coming out on April 25th. But my first book, Lost Fox Cities. Thank you. you. Appreciate that. Uh, First book, Lost Fox Cities, um, came out in 2019, published by the History Press. And uh, I was, I could not be happier with the reception that that got.
1: I'm very excited to finally start reading that cuz
0: Well, I hope a, you do, buddy. I've I been hope putting you it off I hope quite you for a while so.
1: Read I like that, that anticipation hanging over my head, I guess is what I've been doing. And I'm I'm not a bad friend, I just not a dealer. I think I gave reader. you
0: a free copy of that too, no, did I not? pretty sure I paid for oh, it. Oh, wonderful. Well, which I, should motivate <laughs> me even more to be honest. <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> so, long story short, there there's a void, I, I think from our perspective about Kind of that darker side of Wisconsin that I think Mickey and I have have a a unique perspective that we can at least try to fill. And I hope you all will uh, join us bi weekly, I think is something that we can expect. Yeah. 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 I think as long as I've known you, 35 plus years or something like that, is it? Are we that old? (laughs) You're going to call me psycho now? As long as (laughs) I've known you. I've always been
1: crazy and into the weird psychology.
0: This has always kind of been uh independent research that you've done has always been kind oh, of in right. this field this.
1: And you and I have always had very long interesting conversations about that because we're just you
0: know we're that kind of that. sick-minded kind I mean, that, of people. that's what it is twisted. Right. Yes. Who else would you want to hear it from? <laughs> stick to what you're good at. That's right. So without further ado, let's kick off the first episode of Badger Bizarre. So the Taliesin murders Mickey what when we sat down and and discussed this and we kind of were brainstorming about episodes and this one came up what what did you know about this case you know several months ago well
1: actually I work in the construction architectural field I always I had aspirations to be an architect, so I was a big fan of Frank Lloyd Wright for one thing. But to be honest, I got all throughout college, and then I found out about this book, Death in a Prairie House, and that's when I found out about this horrific situation that happened. So I've known about it for years because I read the book years ago. But like you said, my my love of Frank Lloyd Wright's work, not necessarily the person, from what I've come to understand, and my interest in True crime and, and the darker side of human beings all came together in this this wonderful book, and um, I wasn't even aware that there's other books about it. That's that's what, what piqued
0: my interest. Just And then when you mentioned it, I'm like, heck yeah, I'd like to talk about that. So, I think there's two things that, that come to mind when, you know, the reasons that I wanted to, um, to do this episode first to kick off the Badger Bizarre podcast. One, I think, is Frank Lloyd Wright undoubtedly— the most famous person ever from Wisconsin. He's
1: a, at least
0: a face. I mean, he is one of the one of the grand faces of Wisconsin, you're sure. The most prominent architect in American history? I mean, I
1: don't think you're wrong when you say that.
0: You know, I think I think it's it's kind of interesting that when you we're talking about this time period, the f- yeah. early part of the 20th century, first two decades or so of the 20th century. He
1: was born in 1867
0: and died in 1959. Right, and, and his his kind of rise to fame happened, you know, by 1900. He was already world famous. And when you're talking about that time period, there is a case to be made that two of the most famous people in the world at that time are Wisconsinites. One, one a legit Wisconsinite in Frank Lloyd Wright, and the other was born overseas but claimed Wisconsin as his home state huh. and Appleton as his hometown. Right, where we're from. Houdini. Right. You know, it's kind of it's kind of interesting. It's weird to think about it a hundred years later when you think, well, an architect and a magician were two of the most famous people in the world, but that's what it was then, right? Right. And and I mean, even still even still. Everybody knows who Harry Houdini is. Right.
1: They might not have a lot of knowledge, but everybody knows who Franklin right Frank Lloyd Wright is. They don't necessarily have a lot of
0: knowledge, but you know the names. You know the names. And, you know, at that time, there there weren't, this is before Hollywood, yeah. you know, there, there were no pop stars doing world tours. I there mean, was no social media. There right. was nothing, right? Your celebrities were Frank Lloyd Wright as an artist and Harry Houdini. And the names are still very much part of the public perspective. And kind of synonymous with Wisconsin. Yeah, oh, for sure, yeah. And the other, you know, the other reason why I was so intrigued by this is more of a question. And that is because Frank Lloyd Wright was so famous and he's so synonymous with Wisconsin. Why does nobody know about this? Yeah. Th- this is. Until I read
1: this book, I'd never heard about it. All the, I mean, all the architecture classes and stuff. Well, I didn't take a whole lot of art, but architecture classes, but art classes, they never talked about it. They just talked about the elements of his design and who he was as far as an amazing architect, they didn't talk
0: about this horrible, dark side of his past. I mean, even, um, you know, somebody like me and what I do in my work, I research Wisconsin history. And it wasn't until about 10 years ago, I would say, when I was actually researching Frank Lloyd Wright himself, and I don't even remember what it was for. But that's when I finally heard about this. And I'm like, what? Yeah, in the hell happened here.
1: That's probably how, about the time I did too.
0: Right. What happened there? I mean, why? Because this happened at a time wh- where, it kind of sounds macabre to say it, but axe murdering was kind of happening all over, right? I mean, you had the, yeah. the axe man of, of New Orleans who, who went around killing people with an axe. This was in 1918, 1919-ish, right around the same period. He wrote into a newspaper, I think, and he said if people played jazz music, that he would spare them. So people were playing jazz music, like blaring it in their living rooms, hoping just that to the, prevent just from. to prevent the ax man <laughs> from coming to get them. And this is something that is still in pop culture today. It's still the American in the American conscience today. He was actually portrayed in in one of the I think it was season three of American Horror Story. Really, he was in that um, another axe murder. Which happened in Iowa right around the same time. And this is in a house, and it's in Iowa. And I think we might even do an episode on this show because even though it's in Iowa, there's a lot of people from Wisconsin. And I know a lot of people from Wisconsin that have been to this house and investigated it because it's extremely popular in the true crime slash paranormal field. And it's called the Velisca Axe Murder House. And this happened during the same time as the Taliesin murders, still very popular in the American conscience. Taliesin is not. And then, of course, you have the Borden House. You have the the Lizzie Borden murders where you just just were. just visited that over the summer. Right, and that's hugely into the American pop culture. So you have a series... Yeah, you can actually... It's a bed and breakfast. You can actually stay there. Right. It's crazy. You have a series of ax murders that happened in the beginning part of, of the 20th century that are still very well known today, still talked about, still portrayed in pop culture... But yet you have this horrible tragedy that happened inside the home of one of the most famous Famous people in the world. Even He's still one of the most famous names. And nobody seems to know about this. And when I talk about Frank Lloyd Wright to people, of course they know who he is. They spit out the names of his of his buildings. Right, lots of them. Yeah. But you mention what happened in his home, Taliesin, and they all know Taliesin. Yeah. But you mention what happened no there in 1914. No clue. So if you don't know about the Taliesin murders, don't feel bad. Very few people, for some reason, do. We can't really talk about Taliesin and, and what happened here um, without talking about Frank Lloyd Wright and just the kind of person that he was because I think if it's all kind of connected directly or indirectly. And I think you, you have to begin because when you talk about him, you cannot avoid this stuff. It's just the, the arrogance, the egomaniacal vibe you get from this guy just from the quotes that he says and from the countless lies that he tells throughout his life, mainly in the the latter part of his life, when he's giving interviews, uh, he's writing his autobiography. Um, You know, and a lot of this has been found out recently with recent research, uh, because after he died in 1959, his third wife, Ogilvano, just kind of shut everything down. And his archives at Taliesin were... Uh, virtually inaccessible. Uh, she wouldn't allow any talk about MEMA or Taliesin-1, and that was all pretty much just kind of wiped under the carpet. And so research into Frank Lloyd Wright in the kind of a, the the f- several decades after his death was pretty much stymied. And ever since Ogilvanna, Ogilvanna passed away in 1985, and since that time there's been a lot more research done into Frank Lloyd Wright, and we're kind of learning now about all of the kind of ridiculousness that he talked about in his life this legend that he kind of created Um, frank lloyd wright was almost a character well right he invented his
1: ego was so large that he kind of became a character and that that's what motivated everything he did i mean he was always stretched beyond his means financially he needed to pay for his extravagant lifestyle
0: he always got away with that. He was always living, he always made a lot of money, but he was always spending a lot of money. And a lot of times he was spending other people's money. You know, OPM was kind of almost his MO. Um, you know, but when we talk about things that that he invented out of whole cloth, mostly, at you know, the latter part of his life, when he's doing interviews, when he's writing his autobiography, just think, you know, and I think everybody knows people who, who kind of lie all the time. You know, just just lie about everything. And he would kind of do this, and even what seemingly arbitrary stuff, like the year that he was born. You know, he would tell people that he was born in 1869. <laughs> he wasn't.
1: What, what do you stand to gain from that? Exactly. To quote Norm MacDonald, well, I just lied about being a goat. What do I stand to gain from that? I mean, where is that coming from?
0: Right. So it's just, uh, and, and, you know, the question is why all the lying? And it's not only the fact that he would tell people he was born two years later than he was. It was, I mean, it's everything from how he how he became an architect. This whole cockamamie story that he told. That well, first of all, he said that he graduated. He went to UW Madison for three and a half years, and that at the end of the first semester of his senior year, he just he just up and quit because he didn't need it anymore. Right. You know, he knew what he needed to know, and he did, Why would he want to stay for that extra four months to get that burdensome degree? Right. Even that's about his ego. All of it. Just sure. I'm above all of this.
1: That's just what motivated him. All and to, to what what I have to point out is to have come from such humble beginnings, and still have. Because people think confidence means convincing everybody how great you are. For some reason, that's what our society has come to believe. But he really believed that he was something special, like like a once in a generation type of guy. To just you don't do the things he did and think you get away with it if you don't have that ego.
0: I think think this is the question that we get into is why all the lying and why all the inventing? Why tell people you went to Madison for three and a half years and you just quit after a half year senior year and right before you were going to get your degree you quit? And and his story, let me tell you the story, is that he says is that he, he drops out of school he doesn't want to wait the extra four months for a degree. And he takes four off, and he takes off down to Chicago. He kind of leaves without telling anybody his family, he kind of bolts. Right? He almost like runs away. And he goes down to Chicago, and boy, he's gonna pound the pavement. And just on pure merit and pure talent alone, he's gonna find somebody, some firm somewhere to give him a job right on the spot. And now we're talking Chicago in the eighteen eighties, which is the architectural hub of the world right we're talking what 15 years or so after the great chicago fire that burned the whole city down so that that whole city is being built right now the 1893 world's fair is going to be in chicago which which themed in architecture so his story is that he drops out of college because he didn't need it anymore he knew enough he went down to chicago without telling anybody and he pounded the pavement until he finally found an architect that he was just so taken with Frank Lloyd Wright's well, actually, talents. He, he he
1: tried two firms quickly, and then finally started with Adler and Sullivan.
0: Well, he started with Joseph Lyman Silsby, was the first firm that hired him. Right, and then he went to to Louis Sullivan after that. So that, the, but this is a story: is that you know he 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 was so good at what he did that Silsby had to hire him right off the street. And none of it is true. None of it.
1: He was just that good at selling himself.
0: He, he we know we know now, and this again, this is through recent research. Um and, and again, you know, early biographers of his day uh, would they all worked in a in an echo chamber. You know, somebody would say something and it just got repeated. As fact for decades. Social media wasn't around to correct it
1: and criticize well, it and scrutinize true.
0: it. Yeah. And I mean or he would write it in his autobiography and it just got parroted by biographers and and supposed journalists and researchers. Because why would he lie? Exactly. Oh wait. <laughs> you know, but what you know, the, the truth is that he had a very strong family connection with Joseph Lyman Silsby. He had an uncle, Jenkin Lloyd Jones, who was a minister in Chicago, who hired Joseph Lyman Silsby to build him a church in Chicago right at the same time that Frank Lloyd Wright was going down to Chicago. And also Jenkin Lloyd Jones commissioned Joseph Lyman Silsby to build a church on the Lloyd Jones property in Spring Green, a church which is still there. And it's a church that the interior of which was designed by a very young teenage, Frank Lincoln. Wright at the time. So he did not go down to Chicago and get hired by Joseph Lyman Silsby based basically on his own merits. There was a very strong family connection there through his uncle and likely Frank Lloyd Wright had already met and knew Joseph Lyman Silsby and possibly even worked with him in a bit of an apprentice uh, fashion in the unity church at spring green which is still there today. So this was a story that he invented and not only did he want you to believe th- that story, he wanted you to believe that he got hired off the street because his talents were so good and not only did that happen, he was only 17 when that happened.
1: Which and that's which is that's not, also why he was Not true at all. He convinced himself he didn't need to graduate from college.
0: Well, he didn't he barely went to college. How long was he, he, he technically there? He, he, he attended UW-Madison. So First of all, he did get into UW-Madison, but he got in as a, quote, special student, unquote, because his high school grades were trash. Mm. He would never get into UW-Madison, but he did get in as a, quote, special student. He went as a part-time student for about 27 weeks, and he's, we have two grades on file, and they were both Cs. That's so. all the college school. Now, again, so the question is does this. He still turned out to be Frank Lloyd freaking right.
1: right. And that, I mean, and and th- in all honesty, grades are not necessarily a sign of intelligence. There's work ethic, there's a lot of factors that are involved. Some people can cruise by depending on the classes, too, but that doesn't mean he wasn't intelligent. It also doesn't mean he wasn't a hard worker.
0: Of, of course, of course, he was intelligent, and obviously he did well, have Well, he was the intelligent
1: talent. in certain regards at least he, obviously he
0: did have the talent to become the greatest american architect ever so if you're already at the top of the mountain by the time you're telling the story what are you telling <laughs> the opinion. story for you know you're right. already a legend and he and whether he's a legend in his own mind he is but he's he let's let's be real he's frank lloyd freaking right he's the, a legend he's, in everybody's mind he's now. great the greatest american architect Ever in regards to reputation, I understand that. Well, and, and, and the
1: the work does. I mean, like Falling Water is one of the most. I mean, it's it's got leaking problems, and there's there's lots of problems. But
0: Falling Water is one of the most beautiful homes that I've ever seen. Beautiful buildings, no doubt. But so, so his concepts were amazing. They were, but and people in architecture and engineering, like yourself, know that his his places had a lot of structural issues. Oh, right. But, you know, artistically, they were uh, a marvel. Form no was amazing.
1: Function wasn't always, was lacking quite a bit.
0: So, you know, it goes to the question is, why is he lying so much later in his life? Um, you know, he's, he's writing his autobiography, and he tells these ridiculous stories that we know now are not true. As a proven entity. As a proven entity. And then what he does to his father, which is kind of something I want to get into. I think there's a bigger reason of why he's lying. And we haven't mentioned what he did to his father yet. And if you, if you read, you know, any research into Frank Lloyd Wright, you'll find out that his father was a deadbeat, right? His father abandoned the family, walked out on the family. None of it is true. And this is coming from Frank Lloyd Wright himself. You know, it was first coming from his mother, Anna Lloyd-Jones. And it's something that Frank Lloyd Wright um, really bought into and really sold later in his life when he's writing his autobiography is about his father walking out and abandoning the family and mom had some influence on his opinions no obviously. question about it mom you know his father William Carey Wright his mother was Anna Lloyd-Jones his his father was a widower before he met his mother and I, I want to acknowledge an author here his name is Paul Hendrickson um he wrote a book called Plagued by Fire, The Dreams and Theories of Frank Lloyd Wright. It's not a biography of Frank Lloyd Wright per se, but it is a marvelously researched book. A lot of the early stuff you read about Frank Lloyd Wright, as we said before, it's got inaccuracies all over the place, and a lot of that was due to Frank Lloyd Wright. Himself. And the time, to some degree, What sure. if he's lying on top of but it. Paul Hendrickson wrote a phenomenal book. If you're interested in Frank Lloyd Wright... Read this book, the Plague by Fire: The Dreams and Furies of Frank Lloyd Wright. It's the best research book I've ever seen on Frank Lloyd Wright and gets into a lot of a lot of this stuff about his father. who who was a, a, a widower? He was married before he met Frank Lloyd Wright's mother. He was married to his first wife Permelia. Unique name Permelia. Yeah, Never heard it since in 1851 and they, they were from the East Coast, uh, New Yorkish. And they wound up moving to Hartford, Connecticut, and they they started a life there. You know, William was a composer of music. He was a music teacher. He opened his own music school in Hartford. He was an ordained Baptist minister. He was known as an orator, his ability to um, speak. And he was admitted to the Connecticut bar in 1857. He was a lawyer as well. Um, So by the time they moved to Wisconsin in 1859, they had three children, Charles George and Lizzie. And why they moved to Wisconsin, I'm not exactly sure why. But, you know, we're in the 1850s where a lot of people out east moved west. And obviously Wisconsin was the west. Just to get a fresh start. Then, just to get a fresh start. A lot of opportunity out here. Everything was new. So they moved here in 1859 and uh, settled in Lone Rock, which is a small town in Richland County. And he, and he set up a law office there. He started practicing law in Lone Rock. Uh, he continued teaching music. He, he set up a music school. He was appointed commissioner of the Richland County Circuit Court. He was elected superintendent of the local school district. Um, Permelia's extended family, her mother and some of her aunts and uncles and cousins, came to join them in uh, the Richland County area. So this does not sound like the life arc of a deadbeat, mm-hmm. right? I mean, he had... Uh, A pretty nice life going for himself. He's
1: established. He's got family. He's
0: well-known. No question. Very well-liked everywhere he went to. Now, March of 1864, Premelia gives birth to a stillborn child. This was actually their second stillborn child. So they had five children in total, two of which were stillborn at birth. And then two weeks after this last stillborn birth, Permelia herself dies of complications from the birth. So his world is pretty much turned upside down there. He's 39 years old. He's now a single father with three children under eight years old. Permelia's mother actually moves in the house and helps raise the children.
1: And he doesn't make a lot of money.
0: He does not make a lot of money, which was a a kind of a theme for him throughout. Within two years of Permelia's death. On August 17th, 1866, William marries his second wife in Spring Green, Wisconsin, Hannah Lloyd-Jones. And she would eventually chop the H off in her first name and became Anna Lloyd-Jones. That's a disturbing
1: or, way to say it, but nice, nice word.
0: A little foreshadowing there? Chop
1: the H off, yes. A little foreshadowing indeed.
0: Now, the Lloyd-Joneses were a... Uh, a fairly well-to-do group of Welsh settlers in the Spring Green area. I don't want to say they were wealthy. I'm not sure that they were. Uh, they certainly were not poor. They were well-to-do in that area. They were well-to-do in the area. Yeah. I mean, Anna's siblings were educators and school teachers. She herself was a school teacher. Well-respected. They built and ran schools and churches right on their property on Spring Green, which it seems like they had quite a bit of land in the Spring Green area, which is where, you know... In the future, Frank Lloyd Wright would wind up spending a lot of his boyhood youth. Um, So, you know, her family, a lot of them had jobs in Madison and Chicago. They were very well-educated, a very progressive-orientated family. And it seemed to be pretty close-knit. William Carey Wright marries into the family. um, And I don't know if he really meshed with that kind of a family. Frank was born within the first year. William's not making a whole lot of money now as we mentioned before. So he actually moves to McGregor, Iowa, bigger town, maybe a little more opportunity. Two years after that, they move again. They go back out East. They're in Rhode Island. They're in Massachusetts. And this, this gets, I think, misconstrued as the fact that he can't hold a job. He gets fired all the time. That's not true at all. When he left McGregor and he put in his resignation from the clergy there, they didn't even accept it because they were, pissed off kind of that he was leaving he was again he was well liked right they were happy with what he was doing with the congregation so again misconceptions about frank's father all over the place he was restless right i don't think there's any doubt about and they had
1: to move for financial reasons but yes they were well received
0: and so in this time uh frank's younger sisters were born too mary jane born in 1869 not the year That Frank was born. And Margaret Ellen born in 1877. So there's now six people in the family. Right. William's three children with his first wife, Premelia, and now his three children with Anna Lloyd-Jones. But in 1878, they moved back to Wisconsin uh, and back to the Lloyd-Jones area of Spring Green, uh, likely because of financial reasons. I mean, I don't think there's any question that William Wright had some trouble supporting the family on the jobs that he was doing, I think he was an honest man. I think he was trying to make a living. I you think know, he
1: was dedicated to the family too
0: it It sure seems like he was dedicated to the family, but you know financial strains happen. They happen with everybody a lot of times, and it they causes the stress on the family no doubt
1: and the relationship
0: and so they moved back to Wisconsin and at first they stayed a while with the with the Lloyd Joneses in Spring Green, but they wound up moving to Madison and having a house in Madison. And, and Frank Lloyd Wright, while he was living in Madison, would spend his summers in spring green with the Lloyd-Joneses. And, and I think he really kind of meshed with the Lloyd-Jones side of the family. But this, make no mistake, this was a horrible marriage. Anna was verbally abusive to William and to his her stepchildren. She was physically abusive to William to the point where he was unsafe and to the, to the, to the point where actually Anna's stepchildren were taken out of the home by Williams' uh, extended family, which is huge. I mean, how often these
1: days do you hear of the woman being physically abusive? Much less back then, where to the point where the kids had to be taken away. That she, not only just demeaning and belittling, but literally beating him.
0: Let me let me let me read a little about. It. So so what happened was it, it, the the marriage was so bad, and everybody knew this. Anna, fam, and Anna Lloyd Wright, I guess, her family knew this. And her brothers, who were very influential in, in Frank's life later on, and they basically asked him to go. And they said that they needed peace for the family, and the marriage wasn't working, nobody was doing well in this. And they asked him to go, they asked him to leave the house with Anna, and if he did that, they guaranteed that all the children would be taken care of financially so this doesn't sound like an abandonment to me this sounds kind of like a sacrifice
1: forced almost right
0: um so during not even his choice so he did leave he did leave um and he was gone for several months and then then he started to hear through the rumor mill that Anna Lloyd-Jones was was putting him through the ringer was saying that he was abusive to her was calling him a deadbeat was saying that Um, He was neglectful to the family. So when he heard this, he went back and he actually asked for a legal divorce.
1: Well, she's trying to protect her own reputation because she comes from a highly clouded family. And so because
0: he's not there, she needs to start
1: saying things that obviously aren't true.
0: So he went back to clear his name and and he, he made a deposition for the divorce And here are some of the things that he said. This is a legal document. This is not, um, you know, conjecture. These are the things that he said in this deposition for the divorce. This is, quote, Sometimes she said she did not love me, and sometimes she said she hated me. If you give me the place, meaning the house, you may go when you please. I don't care what becomes of you. Her language during the last three years has not been kind, and I do not know of any kind word or expression she has used towards me. Many times before I had thought on the subject of a divorce but had made my mind up that for the sake of our children, Hmm. he wouldn't do it.
1: Sounds like a devoted man to me, to be honest.
0: I left at last because comfort and peace were out of the question and I did not deem it safe to stay. She was jealous of my three children from my first wife. She wanted more money than I could furnish. She would become violently angry. Unquote.
1: And he wasn't doing any favors to the children by sticking around in a relationship like that because the children are witnessing that and it's going to influence who they are and how they look at life, you know. So he, as much bad publicity as he's gotten and whether he was forced out originally or not, he, he made the right choice for his family because sticking around in a situation like that does not help
0: anybody. Well, the court found all charges to be true and granted him the divorce. So they said all of this abuse talk that he would brought up um, and and basically caused the marriage to fail. The court believed it all. Now to bolster, even after she said, even after quite the she opposite. said yeah. that he was the culprit. Now to, to to bolster this, I mean, much later, there's an autobiography called "The Story of My Life," and it's written by somebody called Elizabeth Wright Heller. Now this is Lizzie, if you remember. William had three children with Permelia, and this is Lizzie writing much later in life about her life living with her father, William Carey Wright, and Anna Lloyd Wright, and she writes, quote, she was very sweet to us children till after they were married. Then she grew worse and worse every year. She had a terrible temper and seemed to make no effort to control it. She vented it upon me, mostly because she was jealous of Father's affection towards me. She told me many times that she hated me and all of my mother's people. I was very much afraid of my stepmother. She not only beat me until I was black and blue all over, but threatened me with some terrible things. And she goes on with stories, all kinds of stories, of Anna um, threatening her with sharp objects and... It's just saying terrible things. That's the children saying this. This is the children saying this of a woman. I so, mean, and I know, you, you know, I think last time we were talking, Mickey, you mentioned uh, mental illness coming from the Lloyd Jones side of the family, as as evidenced by the way that that Anna Anna Jones react.
1: Obviously, mental illness must be coming in if you're treating anybody this way. But if you physical abuse seems to be more naturally placed in men, unfortunately, you don't often hear stories of women being like that. So obviously, with any case, there's mental illness going on. But for for a woman to just disregard any maternal instincts, and, and obviously there was something wrong in her brain chemistry. It's, it's obvious.
0: And it was alluded to in the divorce deposition, and William Carey Wright would say that a lot of times what made her kind of act out the most, and when she showed a lot of rage, was when he asked her, was there mental illness in her I think the word was insanity. He asked her several times if there was insanity in her family. Well, who
1: acts like that? Because
0: of the way she was acting. Right.
1: I mean, losing your temper is one thing, but physically abusing everyone that you're around, something's
0: going on. You know, again, we go back to the question of why is Frank lying about this? Frank grew up with those children. He grew up with those stepchildren. They lived in the same house. He wrote them out of his biography, never mentions them. He saw them get beat by his mother. He saw his father get beat by his mother. But yet his mother adored him, adored Frank. So was he lying to protect her? He's protecting something. You know, I I kind of, there's a a bit of me that thinks he's protecting himself. I think he was a victim. Frank Lloyd Wright was a victim of life a lot of times, right. and I think growing up, and we'll get into obviously what what this podcast is really about, but him growing up and see from an abusive family like this and seeing and witnessing this, that's going to screw you up. Well, if you're raised by
1: a woman like that, even if she idolized him and she, from all accounts, she did, he, she put him on a pedestal, but you're still witnessing all this. You're witnessing this, and you know, and, and these are people you're supposed to care about. Whether you do or not, it's going to have an effect on you.
0: You know, whether you're a son of a deadbeat dad or you're a son of a dad that you see get beat by your mother, it's going to affect you. All right. I mean, it's going to screw you up. So, life goes on for Frank, I guess, right? Frank goes to Chicago. He's working for Silsby. He leaves Silsby. He goes and works for Louis Sullivan. And he's doing really well for himself in Chicago. And then he marries Catherine Tobin in 1889. And they begin a life in Oak Park. You know, and I I don't know if anybody knows how that marriage was. I don't know if there's any kind of uh, reports of, of abuse. There certainly doesn't seem to be anything like that going on. They had six children. You know, so it's easy for us to judge. Here we are 100 years later, over 100 years later about why what comes up in the future and why what happens, but nobody really knows how that marriage was. He negotiated
1: a five-year contract with Sullivan in exchange for the money to, to start a house, to, to build a house for this family, and this is when he started kind of branching out on his own and showing who he was as an architect.
0: And it didn't take him long to really burst on, you know, on the scene. Um, he was a very well-known architect throughout the world, By 1903, when he was commissioned by one of by his neighbors, Edwin and May Machini, to build them a house in Oak Park. Now, this is a a family, friends of theirs, I guess, Uh, and they lived in the same neighborhood. I think they lived about six blocks away and they commissioned Frank to build them a new house up on the north side of town. So they weren't going far away, but they did ask Frank to uh, to design their home and which he did. And uh, he
1: became close to certain members of the family as a result.
0: It It's certainly uh, May Machini and Frank um, took a liking to each other, no doubt. I, d- I want to make one point that he had very expensive
1: taste. So even from accounts of his children, as they put it, he had a lively household. So there was always very expensive, very valued things in the house. And as usual, the finances were stretched beyond their means. So he was forced to start doing side jobs and that started causing some friction between him and Louis Sullivan.
0: Bootleg jobs, I think he called that. Right. Yeah.
1: And Louis Sullivan became very disenchanted with that. They there was a quite a long time where and they eventually rekindled their relationship, but there was a lot of bitterness there as far as him doing side jobs when he was supposed to be working for this very well renowned architect louis sullivan so th- that's just another sign of who he was and how his ego kind of got the best of him.
0: so frank was always beating to his own drummer pretty right. much right
1: and no matter who he was disregarding and whether whether it result.
0: was his, whether it was his boss or his wife he's going to do what he wants so sometime likely in 1904 Summerish, 1904, uh, he begins a full-fledged affair with May Machini. Uh, Chini, Cheney, C H E N E Y, spelled <laughs> Cheney, but it, they pronounce it as Cheney. Um, and by 1908, uh, this is world news. Frank's Frank's a famous architect. Um, there weren't a lot of celebrities in the world at this time. There wasn't social media to no. pump, uh, uh, you know, actors. There was no Hollywood, so Frank was a big-time celebrity at that time. So this was a big scandal. This was world news. They didn't really hide it after a while either. I mean, they were seen in public quite a bit, and F- Frank wound up asking Kitty for a divorce, and she didn't give it to him. <laughs> Edwin Edwin does grant M- Mema the divorce. Um, so Mema and Edwin do get divorced. He keeps custody of the children. Kitty would not give Frank Lloyd Wright a divorce for reasons really unknown. Was she, I guess she was hoping that he would come back to her? She doesn't seem like a spiteful kind of person. From what
1: I've read, that's what it was. It was, it was hopeful that she could they could bring the family together. It wasn't, well, he's a big known name now, and I'm just going to milk him for all he's worth. It. For every, everything I've read, it wasn't out of spite. It was out of hope.
0: And they they actually wound up going to Japan to, uh, you know, I think that was an uh, that was kind of wrapped as an intention to maybe save their marriage. I don't think that was Frank's intention at all. I think he did it to, um, you know, kind her, of appease and her and, right. and and probably appease the press as well. Um, you know, Frank. It doesn't seem like Frank really had a problem uh, being married, and uh, or pissing having, people off having. Somebody else. This is, you know, this is a Frank Lloyd Wright quote. Quote, two women are necessary for a man of an artistic mind. One to be the mother of his children, the other his mental companion, his inspiration, and soulmate. Apparently those can't be the one in the same, right? (laughs) So
1: so his moral compass was kind of on another map altogether. Well, I think he invented his
0: own moral compass. Right,
1: or... A whole nother universe to put the compass into.
0: So again, this is in 1908-ish. You know, there's not that we're judging for not, the record. Not that we're ju- look. You know, this was a big deal 100 years ago. Right. It w- it's a big deal today. I think when celebrities for a few days cheating. it would be a right. big deal now. But yeah. you know, look, over half of marriages end in divorce today. So who are we in this modern messed up world that we live in to sit here and judge? People living a hundred years ago. Well,
1: especially people who we don't fully know all the details of. I mean, the things that most people have come to know aren't necessarily the truth. So,
0: well, again, look at you know, look at what people thought about his father that he just walked right. out on the family. Exactly. That's not true. We don't know what Edwin and Mema's marriage was like. We don't know what Frank and Kitty's marriage was like. I'm not defending what's going on.
1: Here. No, and so much of it wasn't documented. We don't. We weren't there anyway. But even if it was documented, you still aren't there. We don't. 95% of any situation we don't know and aren't necessarily in a position to judge. Right.
0: So. And you know and I think it's it's stuff like that quote that I just read where he justifies what he's doing by saying he's an artistic mind, so he's you know, he's allowed to do these kind of things that other people aren't.
1: That's from the horse's mouth. That's so right. So that's uh, yeah. judging or trying to understand no matter what angle you're coming from that it's a testament to who he was and how he looked at himself and the world around him and how he kind of just thought he was above it all.
0: He didn't have to play by the same rules as everybody else. Right. Now they're scorned by the, by everybody they're scorned by the press. They're scorned by locals. They're sinners, right? They're horrible people. Mema is a horrible mother. Frank's a horrible father. And you know, the attention gets so vicious and vile that they basically elope to Europe for a year. And they're both working out there. Frank had some some commissions out there. There was a, a biography being written about him out there that he was helping with. Mama was a translator. She was working. So
1: there was actually two books that came from that. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know,
0: they had stuff going on out there, but they knew they couldn't stay there. This is where they live. They you know, obviously they live in America, their family's here, their children were here, even though they did abandon them uh, temporarily to, to go to Europe. Um, so they had to come back here. But they couldn't go back to Oak Park because they were basically cast-offs there. So
1: he... Just not to interrupt, but at some point, you hear all this criticism, and and this is at a time where social media isn't where it is today, but do you just kind of go, well, they're going to think what they think, and we've already done it. At some point, you just kind of accept who you are, even if you consider yourself a villain or someone who's looked down upon by society the normal society i mean at some point you just accept
0: it and you don't care anymore i, th- I think there's a i think that's his attitude
1: well that was his attitude going in right. it right i don't like.
0: think he cared about anything like that well he did wind up caring because his reputation took a big hit and his commissions took a hit I well uh, professionally so you have that to care way, a little bit right and i think he he did he did care and you know there's writings of his that prove that Uh, He did care about how Mema was going to be treated. You know, he didn't like the fact that she was kind of branded, how she was at that time. So
1: because I'm guessing he made most of these decisions when it came to the outlandish acts they would make, or the decision to go to Europe and then come back. And I mean,
0: but, but you know, I probably. But she, she was. I mean, I don't know if I would. I mean, she was a a, a very independent woman right. on her own. Right, she mean, was a she teacher, had a, and she had she was a, a teacher. She had a bachelor's mind. and a master's. Right, that's I mean, true. Y- this these are the things that I think Frank was drawn to her by. She, independent
1: woman, especially back then, wasn't as readily available as it is now. That's obviously. you know,
0: it, it's it's a rarity for a woman in 1903 uh, to, to have a master's. It right. just was. I think Frank saw her as kind of maybe his intellectual equal. And, and she was
1: a teacher, so she's well-educated. Just and she's, like his mother. Right, right. That I wanted to say that, yeah. There's, there's a lot of parallels there that are not coincidental.
0: So they knew they had to come back here, but they couldn't go back to Oak Park. So basically Frank decides that he has to build them a refuge, and he decides on building it in his boyhood stomping grounds of Spring Green on his favorite hill. So obviously Oak Park didn't want them back. Spring Green wasn't that happy about it either, so he pretty much had to lie and say the house was being built for his mother <laughs> which obviously wasn't true although it, they did have what do you call that, a, a, a mother-in-law suite or something when when you build uh an area in your home for your mother to shove her in a closet your and get it did, her the, hell out of the it way. did have like a, you know a little uh, an apartment for for Anna Lloyd right there so i guess technically you could we can't get by with can hear by her by when we that. shut
1: the doors and she we shove her in the Cascade,
0: right? So, um, you know, and, and it's weird because when his mother died years later, he didn't even show up to the funeral, he never went to his mother's funeral, but yet everything he did was supposedly to protect her. It, it and she it, it idolized wasn't. him, she idolized him, and right. I think he utilized that to his advantage. And well,
1: I mean, she to the point where his ego overcame him so much that he didn't even care about her own death. I mean, she convinced him he was so great. Somehow, amongst all those horrible things that were going on around them, that he didn't even care that she died.
0: That, that, that says, that's very, very telling. I don't know that he didn't care that he di- that she died, but you know, not showing up. You know, If you can't make it to your oh, mom's yeah, right. funeral. It's
1: you, not fair to say he didn't care, but there's, why don't well, you there's, go? Especially when you have the means that he has as Frank Lloyd Wright. Right. I mean.
0: So they, they move in. They, he, he builds the house. He names it Taliesin, which is a Welsh word meaning shining brow you know it is it is just the kind of house you would think the most famous architect in the world would build what he thought was his soulmate it was that and then some they they moved in in 1911 it has a it had a residential wing and also an architectural studio so he also worked there his commissions did take a hit obviously with the bad press they're living at taliesin and they're always adding on so Taliesin was really never done being built. It was always a work in progress. It was always a work in progress. And I mean,
1: if it's, it's the place where he lives. So he's never going to perfect it. He's right. always going to want to add on it. I mean, he's an architect.
0: Right. It's referred to his autobiography in wood and stone. So he's always adding on right. to his autobiography. So they're, because they're always building this house, there's always construction workers around. There's always draftsmen around because of his architectural studio there. So it's this big campus. Because it's this big campus and there's always people there, he em- he has servants. He employs servants, cooks, butlers. Um, and
1: drafters are basically his prodigies. I mean, he's, he's, to his credit, he was
0: teaching too. Sure. A recently hired husband and wife duo, a cook and a butler, Gertrude and Julian Carlton.
1: That sounds like an 80s TV show.
0: What's that? A cook and a, a cook a and a butler, yeah. So we should get on that. Right. Can we pitch
1: it? We're copywriting that right now.
0: So Gertrude and Julian Carlton were hired by Frank Lloyd Wright uh, in June of 1914. So now we're three years after they move in. They've, they're they living a, a somewhat quiet life. You know, Frank is still working. Um, I think the, the townsfolk and the press are kind of accepting this a little bit. The press is... The press, it's never, you know, never not writing about them, never not judging them. But, you know, they're, they're living, and they're living at Taliesin. Julian and Gertrude were uh, black servants. They were recommended to him by somebody that he knew in Chicago. And they were from, supposedly they were from Barbados. I did see a quote where Frank Lloyd Wright said that he believed that they were Cuban so maybe he thought they were Cubans by way of Barbados. I'm not sure, but anyway, it turns <laughs> out none of it was true, right? Julian was from Alabama. He wasn't right? a master of geography not, either. <laughs> right, right, not quite uh, as exotic as Barbados, <laughs> uh, uh, being, or Cuba. Uh, being Alabama <laughs> or Cuba. So he, obviously he lied about where he was from. Now there are some people that think that there was a purpose to that, and maybe premeditated. That, well. Or you know we're talking early 1900s here that he thought of, that he he said if he was from Barbados or from Cuba that he he wouldn't get quite as much backlash as if he were just a an African American right at that time well yeah for that reason and maybe that's true
1: and and maybe he'd be ignorant of who Frank Lloyd Wright was too with how they were living in sin
0: you know maybe he pleaded ignorance no right. doubt so. Again, at this time, Frank's commissions are are starting to tick back up. He's actually working on a project in Chicago at this time called Midway Gardens, kind of an indoor-outdoor theater complex that was pretty much dead on arrival. They were always working over budget. It only lasted a couple years before it went under, but that's neither here nor there. So Frank was out of town when we talk about the date, August fifteenth, 1914. Again, because we're talking about a whole complex here, there's numerous people at the facility. There's numerous people at Taliesin. Mema is there, obviously, and sh- and her, her kids are there, too. Her daughter, Martha, who's eight, her son, John, who's 12, are visiting for the summer, which they did every summer. They came up from Chicago, stayed at Taliesin for the summer, which it appears they were never too happy about. They were always bored in rural spring green being right. from Chicago. They when were never...
1: Not a lot to do in spring green. Right.
0: But, you know, they were with their mother, so I'm sure they, you know, they accepted it. So they were having, getting ready to have lunch on this Saturday, August 14th, 1915, along with four construction workers and two draftsmen who were in the home. So now, you know, from this point forward, everything that happens in the house is really purely conjecture. Because nobody knows exactly what happens from this point forward. It's, it's impossible to know if you weren't there. It's impossible to know. But this is the best kind of recreation. There's been all kinds of um, speculation speculation and recreations about how this possibly happened. Um, we're going to go over, I think, the best scenario that we've seen. And I think that the most um, consistent. The most possible, too. I mean, right, I don't, right. When,
1: it makes the most sense, yeah.
0: Julian and Gertrude are working in the house. They're making lunch for Martha, Mema, and John, along with the six other people who are in the house. We had Herb Fritz, who was a draftsman, Thomas Brunker, who was a general handyman, kind of always around yes, and, Uh David Limblum, who was a landscape gardener, Emile Brodel, who was also a draftsman and was really close, I think, with with Frank Lloyd Wright. Billy Weston, who was really the main construction worker of Taliesin. He's really kind of credited with building Taliesin. He was 35 years old, and he was there along with his son, Ernest Weston, who was 13 years old. So here we are on a Saturday, August 14th. August 15th, excuse me, 1914. It's a hot day. It's August. Mama, her daughter Martha, her son John are on the terrace off of the main family dining room getting ready to eat. They're sitting at a small circle table. The other six draftsmen and construction workers are in another dining room, also in the residential area of the house, but not in the main dining room. And this dining room would be about 80 feet or so from the terrace where Mama Martha, and John were. So as this is recreated, as this is thought to have happened, Julian was serving lunch. And he comes in to the dining room where the draftsmen and the, and, and the workers are. It looks like there were two tables there. There was one table where the four construction workers and the gardener was sitting and uh, one table where the two draftsmen were sitting. And he gives them probably their first course of lunch, soups, salads, drinks. It's hot. They're hungry. They've been working all day. They want to eat. Julian gives them their first course of food to kind of settle them down. Julian then leaves the room. Everything's normal. Everything is normal. Same thing as every other day. Uh, No reason to think anything is up at all. Julian proceeds to go over to the terrace, probably rolls a cart of food in where Mema, Martha, and John are sitting. He gives Martha a bowl of soup. He gives John a bowl of soup. He goes over to the other side of the table, gives Mema her soup, and as she kind of leans over a little bit to take the first bite of her soup, of her lunch, he cleaves her head open with an axe. One swift blow, and this was a, This was a, it was a shingling axe. So it's a, it's kind of a, an elongated hatchet with a long handle and a, and, a, and a weighted head on it, with obviously an axe blade on one side,
1: enough to do the job obviously,
0: and a hammer and a hammer uh, on the other side. And one one swift blow, he cleaves her head open. Obviously, she f- falls to the table, her belching blood. Uh, And she falls onto the tile floor.
1: And her children are sitting there watching. Her children
0: are sitting right across from her, and they're watching this. So obviously they're in shock, right? So next it is believed that he takes John out with one swift blow to the head, to the forehead.
1: And again, they didn't suspect any. There was nothing out of the ordinary. They got their soup like they did every other day or whatever meal he's providing. And they're just sitting there as a family. This guy they just hired a few months ago that they've now entrusted because he lives there. He lives on the premises, so they've come to understand and know him very well. They've come to know this guy. He serves them food, and now he's doing these horrific things. No, he he just from out of nowhere.
0: He kills Mema with the with a hatchet blow to the head. He then kills John, twelve year old boy, with a hatchet blow to the head. And he and Marth, uh, Martha, bolts. Uh, you know, Martha's apparently the shock has worn off her a little bit to get her wits about her, and she runs. And he's chasing her throughout the house, and uh, he's swinging at her at the same time, and, you know, he, he does hit her with the axe three times from the back while he's chasing her. She seems to make her way outside into the court where he does chase her down, and he was on top of her, and he used the hammer side of the hatchet
1: The first thing that comes to my mind, at some point we need to address what level of of psychopathy, I mean, what level of crazy, for lack of a better term, do you have to be to make that first couple of blows to the mom, see two children staring at you just in utter horror, and to be able to continue to do it and chase this 8-year-old girl around the room. There's something that... Thank God we can't understand going on in this guy's mind. He's gone. He's like soulless or something because to be able to continue these actions without having some, oh my God, what am I doing? Kind of thought. thats it's, it's astonishing. I mean, I'm thinking about it right now and I wasn't there. I'm like, how do, at some point do you not, oh my God, what am I doing? I'm chopping up children.
0: But he's not done.
1: Right. I mean, First, you cut, you cut the mom's head off in front of the two kids and the thought doesn't go, uh, well, this isn't normal. I mean, and it just keeps going. So the fact that this must have been premeditated, I don't think that's can be argued. But there was something not right about this guy, whether he was bitter towards their lifestyle or not. This guy had, it was beyond mental illness. There's some kind of... He's a psychopath, a sociopath. Something is going on.
0: So he chases the eight year old girl down and doesn't use the axe side of the hatchet. He uses the hammer side of the hatchet, which I can only believe was a conscious decision on his part. I mean, if he, you know, with one blow, you see that you don't have the hammer part, you're just going to turn it around.
1: Because it's not like he's done this before. P-
0: who knows? I mean, I,
1: I, that's the thing. Do these thoughts just come to you because you're that level of crazy? Or have you thought about it for so long that you went, if this doesn't work, I'll do this. You know what I mean? I, are these just natural acts that someone who's capable of this comes up with at the time?
0: And so he 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 does what he does to Martha, and he leaves her, and he walks over to the room where the draftsmen are and the construction worker. Now, the really sad thing, and I obviously this is— Beyond the pale I mean we can't even Fathom this is going well, it's on It's all sad obviously. But he he walks away Thinking Martha is dead And Martha's not dead Martha lingers Somehow For hours And actually moves From where he left her She actually crawls Further away And is still alive When rescuers come And there's even an account Where she they Some people say That she mouthed The name of her friend And I, I, I don't know If I believe that But Right I mean, it's t- to still be conscious right. while this was going on, and you're or an alive, eight-year-old girl. Or alive
1: in general, much less
0: conscious. So he does what he does to Mema, John, and Martha, and then he composes himself somehow, and he walks over A to... A good
1: athlete always gets back into the game, I guess.
0: So he walks over to the dining room where the six others are, and he pours gasoline under the door. So the, the, the men inside see the see the fluid coming through the door. Herb Fritz, who was one of the two survivors of this slaughter, saw the fluid coming through the door, and he thought that Julian was mopping the floor. That was his first thought. He thought Julian was mopping the floor, and maybe he kicked over the bucket. You don't and, assume and, and, it's gas. And, and he didn't—no. Obviously, that's not going to be your first thought. No, I wouldn't think. So he didn't think it was gas until obviously the fluid got over by him and he could smell the gasoline. And by the time he realized what was going on and he was was able to warn anybody or say anything, the room went up in flames. You know, imagine this scene. Everyone's on fire. I mean, it happens instantaneously. Everyone's on fire. There's panic. And so Julian is standing outside the door with that ax and he's waiting for them to bust their way through the door where he's going to hatchet them with that shingling ax.
1: And this Herb Fritz guy is only 20 years old.
0: He's 20 years old. So Herb Fritz, he might not have a whole lot of life experience, especially something like this. So Herb Herb Fritz uh, in in all of this panic, I mean, you're on fire, your clothes are on fire, your hair is probably singed. You're, you're choking on smoke. He had the wherewithal to remember that there is a small window that Julian apparently didn't, didn't plan on being there, didn't think of this. There's a small window in the room that was about a, a foot or so off of the floor, and he was able to kick through that window and throw himself outside about a story and a half high, and he fell onto a bunch of jagged rocks and that goes down a hill uh, towards a pond, so he threw himself out that window. He lands on those jagged rocks. His arm snaps like a twig; it's broken right when he hits. He's rolling down the hill, and he said it. He later on he said it was about halfway down the hill where he st- it put the fire out. Right, and he was just able rolling to, down. The he hill. was able to um, kind of stop himself, and he looked back up, and this is where he witnessed Julian killing Emile Brodel, who was also trying to follow Herberts out that window. So we have a room. We have a corner room of the house, okay? And there's two outside walls on this corner room. And Julian is, he's standing outside with the hatchet, waiting for the guys to bust through the door. Waiting for him to come out. Waiting for him to come out, where he's going to axe them all outside. He started
1: the room on fire, and he's waiting outside, waiting for them to come out, panicked, so he can axe them.
0: So now he sees that... A couple of them are getting out through a window that he didn't plan on, so now he's running o- around the corner. Okay, he's making like a like a crescent from one side of the one side to the other side, two outside walls, and he's killing Emile Brodel with the axe because he just got through the window. He's only thirty years old. I mean, thirty years young old people. So after he kills Emil Brodel, he then runs back over to the other side. <laughs> You know, waiting for the guys to come through the door while he's hatcheting. I mean, it almost seems like a superhuman feat. You know, this one guy is killing these men with with the amount of force it takes to kill somebody with a hatchet, and he's running from side to side. It almost seems superhuman. It almost seems impossible. But to he believe. does have
1: shock and and overwhelmed panic on his side. And the more we talk about this, the more I realize this was all premeditated the fact that you put them in, in a room locked the room well allegedly. sure that was
0: premeditated i don't think but the i mean your stand- side was premeditated no he, he, he didn't think of that.
1: that but but you're standing outside waiting for them to escape however they do he thought about this and to, to to be able to execute it without any kind of remorse or guilt it's very telling that this person was not all there maybe 50 cards short of a full deck
0: so so after this scene where he thinks he killed these men, uh, I don't know if he's aware that Herb Fritz got away or not, um, but he thinks they're all dead.
1: He's got to be a little overwhelmed by the situation too at this point.
0: Well, I don't know because he now does a more, a, another premeditated thing where he walks over to the bodies of Mema and John and he douses them with gasoline right. and he sets them on fire. Right.
1: Getting rid of the evidence.
0: This is a 12 year old boy that he sets on fire after he cleaves him with a hatchet to the point where there's nothing left of him. There after was,
1: killing his mother in front of him.
0: There was a, 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 a I think it's the, the quote is something like there was a clump of ash and, and hair. I mean, there was literally nothing left of John.
1: It's not even poetic.
0: Uh, yeah. Well. Mama was, was obviously burned and, and Martha's. Clothes were burned off of her. It doesn't appear that he went back over and doused her with gasoline, but obviously she was on fire either way. So Herb Fritz and David Lindblom, who was the gardener who was still alive after the initial attack, uh, ran to the nearest house, which was not close. I think it was like a quarter mile or something away. I mean, these guys have just, you know, Fritz has a busted arm because he fell a story and a half. He was set on fire. And Lindblom has been cleaved in the head with a, with a, with a with an axe.
1: But Fritz actually decided to come back and help. And both of Was a did. twenty year old.
0: Both Fritz and Lindblom came You're back. You're so and, panicked and by helped.
1: this horrific situation that you never dreamed you'd be part of, and yet I have to do something. And you still have your, the wherewithal to come back and I need to try and prevent this from going any further.
0: Uh, help! Help comes. Obviously, authorities get there. The neighbors came, anybody who was anybody in the area, came to the house to to help uh, when they realized what was going on. And yeah, I can't imagine what they thought when they got on. So Ernest Weston was the 13-year-old son of Billy Weston, and Ernest Weston was cleaved with an axe as he came out the door. Billy Weston was cleaved too, but he survived. He was not able to save his son.
1: He was hit with the blunt end.
0: Herb Fritz survived... And Billy Weston, 35 years old, survived. Tom Bronker, 66-year-old general handyman, died. David Lindblom, who ran a quarter mile with Herb Fritz to call for help, wound up dying two days later. From wounds. Emile Brodel was killed on the spot. Ernest Weston, the 30, 13-year-old son of Billy Weston, was killed on the spot. So now everybody's on the scene. They realize what happened. Herb is telling them this was done by Julian, so now they're looking for Julian. And they find him, a few hours later, hiding in the furnace. And when they find him, they're, he's already drank a vial of hydrochloric acid to try to commit suicide. Hiding in the insulated
1: furnace. Right.
0: After having drank poison to kill himself, uh, he survived that episode. Uh, and he actually lingered on for seven weeks until he died of starvation. I don't think he could talk very much. There's some there there are some accounts of him talking to the sheriff and, and uh things, but I mean Actually guy, recounting it? The guy well, he didn't get in a whole lot of detail. Well there there's you know, he, he did he made some comments. He didn't say a whole lot of stuff, but he made some comments to the sheriff. But he couldn't talk. I mean he didn't have a throat. Right. Basically he swallowed Acid's gonna have he some swallowed effect acid. He couldn't eat um, you know, I don't, I'm i sure they could have, I don't know, did they didn't have IVs or stuff back then? I'm sure there was a way that he could have eaten, but he obviously he refused.
1: But again, premeditated. The fact that he had acid there to drink, that was all part of the plan.
0: No doubt. Yeah, he, this was certainly planned. Um, So he he died seven weeks after this Knowing happened. he was going to kill himself after this. Knowing he was going to kill. Well, I mean, that's... I mean, he tried to hide. Right, but he still drank acid. He probably didn't drink acid until he, he, like, Thought he was going to get caught, right. Yeah, I suppose. Uh, Gertrude, uh, by the way, hightailed it out of there real quick. Oh, yeah, his wife, his wife. his Maybe wife. I mean, nobody really knows anything about her. The police did detain her. She was spoken to and interviewed. um, But they put her on a train to Chicago and got her out of there. Basically
1: found out she was guilty and had nothing to do with any of this. Or not guilty, sorry.
0: There's no evidence that they... Believed that she had anything to do with right. this, right? Um,
1: she ran away as soon as anything started happening. So,
0: so obviously, when this when this happened, uh, Frank Lloyd Wright, who was in Chicago working with his son John Lloyd Wright, uh, you know, so they did rekindle their relationship. I don't know how rosy it was, but you know, he did have a relationship with his he was working with him with yeah. his sons and with his children.
1: At least a working relationship with that one. Yeah.
0: So you can imagine getting a call like that. There's some discrepancy about how much he actually knew and was told on that call. There also is an account that he did talk to herb Fritz but we, you know we don't know how much herb Fritz knew at that time either did did herb know that that Martha and John and Mama were dead we don't we don't know that We don't actually know what was happened what was talked about on that call. So you know obviously panic they have to get to Spring Green as fast as they can him and John get on a get on a train. It's not a quick, transport but they do they get on the train and they're coming and the train is making stops for other people and whatnot and who gets on the train but Edwin Cheney so not only do you have to make that not only do you have to make that uh transport from Chicago to Spring Green
1: to see your family dead
0: to see your dead family but your dead family is Edwin Cheney's dead children so you can imagine you know there, there was a reporter that was on the train he did say that they um, had kind of a polite embrace and they sat across from each other on the, on the train
1: but they were all aware of what, it what seems
0: happened. it seems well because and I, they were told pretty much by the press what happened because they're you know by this time the chicago tribune had already heard what this happened at noon Right. You know, 12.20 in the afternoon. About so they it.
1: couldn't have known any of the details, but they knew something horrific had happened.
0: They heard basically from the press shouting out questions that it was pretty bad. I mean, I think on the phone call, Frank was told that Taliesin was on fire, and that was probably all he knew at that time, and I think by the time he got to Spring Green, um, he knew that it was much worse than that.
1: Well, and that's the thing. Human nature is, is for your mind to jump to drastic conclusions and assume the worst but when the worst is what's happened imagine what that feels like and how you're trying to deal with everything on this train ride and you get there and you find out that everything you've thought out thought of doesn't even compare to what's actually happened i i can't even imagine
0: even with the way that we've been talking about frank and how uh, With kind ego of egotistical and, he is and how he was selfish and people still matter to you. Key was devastated by this. Right. You know, and and, and there obviously there you know was he a, was he a suspect, you know, there were rumors that maybe he he hired Julian Carlton to right. knock off. I mean, that was obviously they looked into that. There was nothing to any of that. Well, he's
1: capable of abandoning his family and all that stuff. and and I mean, but is he capable of Hiring I mean, someone to murder a, them in such a ritualistic, horrific way. That's a big jump, right? Right.
0: So, no, there's there's no sign at all to believe that Frank had anything to do I've with this. I've never he, read he, anything that even Frank, implies that. Frank was a was a victim here like like everybody else. Right. He went into a huge, deep, deep depression. Uh, he Understandably. He was lying in bed for weeks and months. He was getting apparently boils on his neck, which was probably some kind of a bed sores. He wasn't eating... Uh, he was getting fever and chills. Just, um, you know, I, I can't imagine what somebody goes through when they get a call like that.
1: Well, imagine the other characters in this story, how they feel about their family members having gone through this or even the people that survived. You're Franklin, right? You're the nucleus of this. You're the reason this all happened, essentially, because that place doesn't exist if
0: you're not. Well, he you, built the house and he hired. You are the person the who
1: made this place exist. The other people have to deal with their family members having died this horrific, disgusting right. thing that you never would have envisioned. You're you're the reason that happened, if you're Frank Lloyd
0: Wright. which is why I think it was important to talk about Frank Lloyd Wright until getting yeah. into this. Uh, yeah, and, you know, this is the reason. You know, the reason that Taliesin exists. You know, it was called a love bungalow, a love cottage, right. and you know, and people
1: were... speculate that Julian was coming as a representative of of the the bitterness and the the hatred that the public had as far as their scandal their ways that aren't you know traditional and they're they're just abandoning their families all that stuff this is way beyond that in my opinion this was some kind of mass murderer serial killer this was a person who's mentally ill also obviously to be capable of these kinds of acts, no matter how you felt about Frank Lloyd Wright and his actions and his family and the decisions he's made.
0: So, Frank, his his personal life went into turmoil. You know, he, he got involved with a, with a morphine addict named Miriam Noel. And who hasn't? Well, you know, he did wind up marrying this girl after they were together, I think, for nine years. And uh, Kitty finally did give him the divorce in 1922. Uh, Very nice of her. So he was, I think he was with Miriam for nine years and then six months after they were married, he was, they were over. I mean, she, there were fights, there were verbal assaults. She apparently waved a gun at him or ran at him with a knife. And he, you know, he apparently um, hit her with his fist once. I mean, this was, you think his parents had a dysfunctional marriage. I mean, that's kind of, what this was tenfold a little bit with yeah Miriam Noel um she also she continued to stalk him even when they were done it was just chaos you know he was clearly deeply unhappy with his you know his his work was floundering his commissions again were were not great but there was something going on here with him professionally he was also kind of quietly reinventing himself and it sounds like he kind of refocused himself on his art he met, which would be his third wife, which was, uh, Ogilvana. was a Ogulvana. She's a twenty-six-year-old who was born in Montenegro and educated in Russia. Um,
1: and her name is Ogovana.
0: And her name is Ogilvana. And she was she had educated a daughter in and, Russia. She had a daughter named Svetlana. Huh. And Ayavana.
1: <laughs> Are we?
0: <laughs> that was, That's real.
1: You sound like a Russian. Uh, Sam, I am all of a sudden.
0: So she she did. They did Dr. have Dr. Seuss.
1: A, that's the big name. I couldn't come up with.
0: They did have a daughter together, and she also had a daughter before, uh, from a previous relationship that Frank did adopt. And it 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 really does seem like Ogovana, You know, although there's some things to her too that need to be spoken about. Think, but it does seem that she. She kind of uh, brought some stability back to his life a little bit when Miriam Noel was out of the picture and done stalking them and trying to have Olgovana deported, uh, which she was trying to do. Um, So it does seem that Olgovana was kind of a a, a ray of, of good light to him at this time. And professionally, he really took off at this point. I mean, and this is now we're in the era where he did. Uh, Falling Water and Wingspread and the S.E. Johnson building and the Guggenheim. I mean, this was all done later in life after all this tragedy happened.
1: So do you think a guy like that, do you think he hides himself? I mean, does anybody ever completely get over something like this? Or any of these, leaving your family, you know, all these things that have happened. He's had a storied life even before this horrific thing at telly us. and does a guy like that he just hides himself in his work obviously i mean maybe that's what makes him the mastermind that he is when it comes to architecture well, he, he
0: went uh, he went from a world-renowned architect before this happened to a legendary architect did yeah. did it affect him professionally i think it did you know i think it might have motivated a lot him. of the troubles that he went in his personal life after that um you know as an artist myself Grief, grief is a motivating factor.
1: But no, I mean, that's definitely like any kind of musicians, artists, sculptors, everything. But the hardships in life are the way you express yourself and that's how you deal with it. So in some weird, twisted, morbid way, these horrific events motivated him to become even better because if nothing else, you hide yourself in it. At some point, the expression of those emotions and feelings that you're possibly trying to run from will come out. Right and create, you know, masterpieces and
0: and greatness. So, you know, in Ogilvana, although there were, it seems like a lot of positive energy that she did bring to him, she's kind of also the reason that a lot of this stuff is unknown until recently. You know, like we talked about earlier, why does nobody know about this? Because it's because after Frank's death, she shut everything down. You know, there was was no access to Taliesin. Protecting him. Who knows why? I don't right. know, but maybe protecting herself because right. she didn't, you know, she didn't want to deal with the fact that he'd been married before. And, you know, Mema. She didn't want
1: everybody talking about it in a judgmental world. And
0: Mema is kind of known as his, his soulmate, right. you know. and right. And he, he didn't mention Mema a lot. He wouldn't. He he didn't mention her name,
1: which means wrong. you've never really dealt with it in, in a lot of
0: regards. You know, there were some writings that he did kind of uh, closer to when this happened that he did mention the word MAMA. but you know, li- again later in life when he would when he would refer to this, he would always have a, a name for her. He, he would always refer to her, and I don't have them right in front of me, but he wouldn't. He never said the word MAMA.
1: which, as I said. It is usually a sign that you haven't completely accepted the situation and moved on from it. If you can't even speak and it's not to, to disrespect the dead, if you can't even speak the name of the person who you've lost, it means you haven't fully understood what
0: happened. I don't think he ever did come to grips with this stuff and right. a lot of the stuff in his stuff in his life and I think this is where all the lying and and the and the embellishment comes from. I think he's trying to protect himself this innocent person who didn't have he 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 didn't marry into um uh, you know an abusive family when he was a toddler. He didn't beat his stepkids. No, he, learned he didn't it beat from... his father. No, he learned it. It's the stuff that he saw when he was growing up. He didn't kill These were defense people. mechanisms from no early question about on. It. I think early he, on. Yeah. He used when he was older and he was telling the story of his life and he, he was using bravado and embellishment to kind of hide that stuff.
1: And when you're that legendary name, you can get away with it to some degree a well, common until, man like us can't necessarily, but he can.
0: In Ogovana, she a couple acts that she did. She Frank passed away in 1959 and he was buried obviously in in Spring Green next to or in fairly close proximity to Mema. Ogovana had him disinterred and moved to Taliesin West in Arizona, which where,
1: which is to to your argument that she might have been protecting herself. She, uh, she, she, there might she, have she been was definitely protecting or...
0: herself. And not only that.
1: Uh, uh, understandably so. It's not like she did anything wrong necessarily before then, at least, you know.
0: So Ogilvana had Frank disinterred and moved west to and West, to Arizona. And she also laid a stone on Maima Borthwick's grave. Because when Maima was with Frank, she was divorced from Edwin Cheney and she got rid of the Cheney name. And Ogilvanna laid a stone, a, a gravestone, on Mema's grave, and it says Mema Borthwick Cheney in big letters. So oh, this is kind of another spiteful. kind of right.
1: But I was gonna say at least laying the headstone
0: was. Oh, it sounds honorable, right? It
1: sounds respectful, like oh, it wasn't there, but it's almost like
0: she uh, had another agenda there, right? So but, but that, I think that's why a lot of people don't know about this. I think this was this was hidden for decades because Olvana from,
1: from the people themselves
0: right Olvana wanted nothing to do with it. She didn't want anybody talking about it. She didn't want anybody talking about Frank Lloyd Wright that didn't involve her. and she moved pretty much everything to Taliesin West, and Taliesin itself went into 30 years of decline. It was yeah. basically abandoned until it was purchased and preserved like it is today. Now, I don't know. I've heard I've heard two different things. I've talked to two people that have been on the tour, and I've never been on the Taliesin tour. Have you, Mickey? Yes. If you have been.
1: It's been a long time, so I can't necessarily recall any details, but I, I, I know I was there.
0: So I talked to one person who said that the reason they know about this, of what happened to MEMA, was because they did the tour at Taliesin. And then I talked to another person. Sorry to interrupt, but I was there before I even knew this all happened. Did you know about it then? Did they tell no, you about I it then? I don't recall that they did, to be honest with so you. So I talked to another person who said that they did the tour and they still had no idea this happened right. until yeah. I told them about it. Right. So I'm not real. I've never done the tour. I would love to do it. I, what are we, two hours especially from it or now, something? Yeah. I mean, maybe it's something this summer that we could right. do. I would love to do that, especially since we've done this research.
1: And maybe we could revisit this, this episode then, too.
0: So I don't. It, Right, you know, and I think I want want to put that out there is when we cover something, we don't cover something and then that's, you know, that's it. And then we totally move on to something else. I think when we cover something, we open it up. Yeah. You know, we could have six, seven, eight Any more updates or anything
1: we want to recover, uh, discover, yeah, we could definitely bring it up.
0: Anytime there's anything more to talk about. Right. But I, I would really like to know, and if anybody out there has done the tour or if somebody involved with Taliesin would would like to to clear this up it how is this handled at and today is this talked about is this mentioned because i'm i'm of the the um a, assumption and again i don't know i've have never done the tour that it's not really spoken about
1: right and as i as i've said i don't remember them speaking of it when we were there i we might not have even done the tour we might have just walked around Cause I was with my parents, and they're um, frugal. At least at the time, so <laughs>
0: so they only did the half tour. We might oh,
1: have to her. You've met my parents. I don't think it was a half. Just did lunch on the front we, lawn? We, we, <laughs> we sat in the car and looked at it from a distance, <laughs> and we didn't have smartphones back then, so we didn't even take pictures. But I, I don't, I don't believe that I, I heard any kind of, even if we had talked to anybody who worked there, or whatever we hadn't heard any rekindling of this story cuz i'd never heard of it until like 10 years ago when i bought
0: this book so and i understand that they don't they don't want this to be the reason people course, come to tell us and right. i fully get that but at the same time
1: it's a it's a fascinating story this, this
0: happened and people died there it,
1: it it's a thing to i think the way people are so drawn into the morbid side of life i mean the, the whole serial killer phenomena this is something that's going to draw people in
0: It'll draw people in, but I, I think the question is, do you want people drawn in because of it? Right.
1: Uh, yeah, Yeah. you don't necessarily want that paint on the whole story.
0: I think I'm looking at this more of a, again, I'll say it for a third or fourth time. I have not done the tour. I don't know. But, you know, I guess I would like to know, is, is there at least a marker, or a memorial there to the people who... It's not the same building, obviously. It's been no. rebuilt. But it is the same spot. And I'm just very curious about how... Taliesin handles this story today. So if you know, if you've done the tour recently, or if you're staff at Taliesin, um, let us know. Hit us up on social media, find us on social media, and and give us your take. And Mickey and I will definitely find out for ourselves uh, later this year. So the question that's never been answered now that we're over 100 years since this happened is motive. Why did Julian do this? Nobody knows, and nobody will ever know. Julian himself, himself never said. I don't know if that he was ever able to speak after he swallowed acid. There are rumors. you know. There's always rumors. There's rumors that they were actually fired. Um, there was rumors that Julian did not get along with Mema and that may, uh, Mema may have dressed him down at some point in the in the preceding days that this happened and as i
1: as i addressed earlier maybe he was a representation of the, the public opinion of them and their scandalous lifestyle but it seems like it's way beyond that there's
0: oh. no evidence of any of that there's there's rumors that he had a, an argument with emile Brodel, right and emile Brodel was the actual target right and it wasn't the rights at all or frank lloyd right and his Mama at all um apparently the story is that emil Brodel told julian to saddle his horse and julian said that that's not his job to do and emil Brodel called him a black son of a bitch is that what causes you to (laughs) dismember and burn nine people
1: i i laugh because it's so ridiculous that to respond to that degree just it it sounds just ludicrous.
0: I don't think that. I, again, what I think. How, you, how you disturbed you have to be? Disturbed in mental illness. There is evidence that from his wife, Gertrude. The statements that she gave said that he was paranoid leading up to this. And he started sleeping with that axe under his pillow or right. by his bed. So we're, we're dealing with paranoia here. Schizophrenia, possibly. Possibly. I mean, we're looking at 1914. You know, are we dealing with. With a, a paranoid, mentally disturbed individual, we're never gonna know.
1: Well, the whole th- the whole concept of psychology wasn't anywhere near where it is now.
0: So, you know, at least in my mind, uh, you know, rumors aside of uh, them being fired or them being uh, not getting along with Mema, I think we're looking at a disturbed individual, and you know, we can uh, we can try to uh, speculate. Um, use logic to try to disseminate what a paranoid disturbed individual did uh, but we're never gonna know what are your closing thoughts about Taliesin, Mickey uh
1: like you say I've grew up kind of always wanting to go into architecture so Frank Lloyd Wright was someone who I lumped onto and was fascinated by to have heard this story as an adult it's incredible I, it's dark, it's twisted, it's it's morbid, it's depressing, but it is very interesting, and it is a part of our history, and that's it's fascinating.
0: I think my takeaway of this is this needs to be more in the mainstream. I think there's way too many people that don't know about this. So that's for sure. And I know that Taliesin may not want that, but I, I, I don't... I, again, I understand why they don't want that to be the focus of Taliesin. They want a
1: positive point of view for it, yeah. But
0: these people lived. Right. Right. Seven people were killed at Taliesin.
1: It's a part of your history.
0: Ernest Weston was 13. Martha Cheney was 8. John Cheney was 12. You know, this, that the, the takeaway needs to be those people. Herb Fritz, David Lumblom, Emile Brodel, Billy Weston. I think that's that's my takeaway, is that more people need to know the history of Not only Taliesin, but they need to know that these people lived and they deserved to live. What happened to them, which was of no fault of their own, doesn't mean they need to be snuffed out forever. Let's change that.
1: Amen, brother.